What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Stack Strength Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Daniel DeBrock. And today I'm joined by Kasim Hansen, and we're going to be talking about uh, common misconceptions around biomechanics, some of the conversations that have been going on, and uh, we'll uh, we'll dive right into it. So first off, Kasim, thanks for jumping back on. Um, this is your second or third time on the podcast, I think, something like that. Yeah, um, I think it's the third. Yeah. It's always interesting. I always really enjoy the discussions. Um, so can you give a little bit of a, just a brief overview of who you are for people who maybe aren't familiar? Uh, I am the founder and the head educator for M1 Education and N1 Training. And essentially what we do is we we teach individualized exercise and, and programming, basically how to take somebody and figure out how should you set up an exercise for them or what exercises might be more beneficial for their goals than others and then extending that principles to training variables like volume and frequency you know etc um and you know i right now i think i'm i don't i don't want to like i don't like the term influencer um but you know i think right now i would say we're probably some of the largest influencers in terms of the trends in the fitness industry with whether it be people thinking about biomechanics or the whole optimal versus not optimal training or people just all of a sudden starting to do unilateral pull downs or whatever it may be right so we're making a splash yeah it definitely did kind of come out of nowhere uh i remember that's kind of how i heard from you actually was exactly from a lot of those things as well and so kind of interesting how a lot of the stuff caught on but i also think it's indicative of the effectiveness of it to, to some extent i mean i guess i should kind of temper that that comment but i do think that things that generally have a lot of practical utility tend to catch on whereas things that don't sometimes they catch on but then they kind of fade off a little bit um mm -hmm. so yeah i guess let's get uh get into a couple of of i guess the more consistent topics that you run into so first of all i guess what what are some of the common misconceptions that you see especially with people who are kind of reiterating some of the stuff that you're teaching but maybe you're missing some of those fundamental points because i know i've certainly seen a ton of that lately and i've even made several posts on it and the people have accused me of calling you out which i was not and had to actually make posts being like yo this is not about the x person it's about this information so um yeah, I guess we'll we'll just kind of start there. I think one of the biggest problems is is that we put out tools, right? Tools that can be useful for people that have certain goals that they're focusing on. Um, and sometimes the way that those tools are described of saying, hey, this is good for that, ends up getting translated as this is the best end-all, be-all exercise, only way to train that muscle. This is the optimal, best, whatever. And it's like, well, no, really what we're looking at is, here is a way to kind of expand the options that you have so that you can be a little bit more nuanced in your application to training. That doesn't take away from more traditional or, or what people think are more foundational exercises. It just says, hey, here's other exercises that you could try that may under certain conditions provide a better result or work better for a specific individual or provide an opportunity to target something when your equipment is limited or et cetera, like all sorts of different things. Um, but people like the people want to have that one simple answer of like, hey, just tell me what what is the best exercise for this? And unfortunately, the internet just takes anything that you say about something and he's going to take it to the extreme good or the extreme bad, depending on, you know, the context of what you said, right? Yeah, I've definitely seen a lot of that as well. Um, 
I remember I made a post uh, not too long ago talking about how sort of calling out that bullshit around like obesity is not a choice and just being like, this is kind of a stupid question. Like it doesn't frame the, the issue appropriately at all. And I remember immediately I started getting a bunch of DMs about, oh, so what are you saying? Like, you know, fat people are this, fat people are that. And I was like, did you even read what I wrote? Like, <laughs> just because I don't agree with this doesn't necessarily mean that it's the opposite is, is, is true or is reflective like my stance, I guess. And so I definitely see a lot of that stuff coming um, with, with you. So one of the things that I would like to talk about actually are pull-ups um, and then utilizing different variations for uh, doing pull-downs and rows and how to sort of target uh, different musculature by using different setups um, because I know that's something that I've heard a lot of people talk about and then maybe we could kind of move on to the bench press mm -hmm. and how that's going to uh, affect chest development for, for hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. Sure. So if we start with the pulling movements, um, you know, essentially if we think of categories or, or groups, you have the lats, and then you have the upper back, which is usually qualified as like, all right, that's your rhomboids, your traps, you know. Sometimes you may include the rear delts in that, sometimes not, just depends on kind of who you're talking to. But essentially it's like you have lats, you know, that are basically the things that attach from the humerus to, you know, your trunk directly. And then you have all the muscles that attach from your humerus and they attach to the scapula or you have things that attach from the scapula to the trunk. So you have essentially like these kind of three categories of muscles. Um, and when it comes to, you know, back training, most people are like, oh, it's, you know, tell me how to target the lats because the lats are the most superficial thing and people are vain. And so they want to grow the thing that they can see. So for lat, for lat training, the thing that we've kind of really opened up, I think, um, is this idea of, you know, working in a three-dimensional space where you're taking advantage of the fact that, you know, you aren't just a 2D piece of paper and that you have a rib cage that changes the direction that your lats pull depending on where your arm is. So if, I mean, so if your arm's out to your side, right, you know, like you were making a T or a Y, well, then your lats are going to basically adduct. They're going to pull your arms in towards your side. But if your arms are out in front of you, then because the rib cage redirects those, then the lats are going to end up pulling your arms, you know, back and down. Um, and if your arms are actually across you, like you were finishing a chest fly, your lats are actually going to aid AB ducts. They're actually going to pull out before they, they pull back. So what that does is it gives us a lot of different possibilities for setting up exercises and we can then target these different divisions of the lats. So what we've been able to find when we look at everything from the mechanics to what we're able to decipher from EMG or, you know, blood oxygen or muscle oxygen levels, um, and just the basic biomechanics of things is, is that we can get the lat to be in a more stretched position while also having good mechanics when we utilize the rib cage because it allows us to lengthen the muscle more before we have to get the arm way overhead and typically when you have the arm way overhead you kind of lose leverage at the lats like the pecs can start to take over you're going to use some more of your elbow flexors even your long headed triceps your teres that sort of thing the posterior delts all those things you're going to have to make up for that so what we found is that, all right, if we do motions where we're pulling towards the iliac, like that gets the lower lats or the outer lats, the, the, the fibers that attach closer to the pelvis, and that's going to be your like highest incline motion. But we can, instead of doing a regular pull down where you'd be just reaching straight up overhead and pulling down, what we found is that actually if we, you know, let the arm stretch forward and around the ribs and up, 
we don't have to go as high to get the stretch and therefore that ends up being we'll say a a better probably a better exercise for hypertrophy if we look at the principle of well we're getting a better stretch so therefore maybe we're getting a little bit more stretch mediated mechanisms in there um, the recruitment seems to be very good so it seems that activation is is very good there um, and we're also in a place where there's good leverage if we're looking at you know moment or moment arms or you know all the physics type terms like it ticks all of the boxes where some of these other positions maybe they tick one or two of the boxes, right? Um, and then as we move into getting more horizontal, like as your arm path goes down, the lats that you're actually targeting start to move up. So you start to pull at a little bit less of an incline angle, then you're gonna hit more of the lumbar fibers, which would be like middle division of your lats. And then as you get to maybe more of a horizontal position, you know, maybe even just a slight low to high pull, but still with the tight arm path, then we're really targeting the, the thoracic lats. And that's what we found is the most efficient way uh, to train those muscles, especially from hypertrophy. But that doesn't mean that like if you, are doing a wide grip pull down and you're training them their function and, and as a deduction that you're not training them but you aren't getting like the stretch mediated you know you're not ticking that box um, and from a leverage standpoint you know if you look at the leverage throughout the whole range of motion there's definitely some spots where it doesn't have particularly great leverage you know especially once you start looking at the individual fibers um so that's kind of where we're at with the uh, with the lats. And then when it comes to like targeting the upper back, it's really about trying to then bring your body into like maximal retraction in different planes. So these are the motions where you'd be doing like the maximum amount of shoulder extension with retraction. Um, and kind of a key component there is that you're actually going to let the arms, instead of staying in tight to the rib cage, you're going to let them flow out. Um, and then that works for several divisions of the rear delts. Like most people don't realize that there's actually three divisions of the of the rear delts. So just think about rear delts. Um, and so there isn't one like best exercise for rear delts. There's actually, you know, if you do a traditional like wide grip pull down and you, you're pulling down, the portion of the rear delt that's actually the most medial, the furthest in on the scapula is going to is going to be shortened a little bit more and targeted a little bit more but if you're doing like a row motions it's going to be more of the middle portion of the rear delt and if you're flaring your elbows out even more well then that's going to be the lateral portion of the of the rear posterior delt so you have like all of these options and it's not that one is best they're just different tools for you know for your goal um and i think that's where it gets lost is people want to know like well if i could only pick one like gun to your head which one would you pick and i'm like well since you can literally grab a dumbbell and do like any of those three arm paths, that's just not a realistic situation that you would ever have to be in of having to pick only rowing with one elbow path. So to me, I just don't understand that logic. I know people want to have the simple answer of like, hey, just give me the one thing that I can do forever. Um, and I mean, you can you could take that approach. There's a lot of people that stick to foundational exercises and they train them and they have a certain degree of success. I would argue that that might not be the most efficient way to do it. Um, but there's clear evidence that people have had success with you know doing a very small number of exercises um, but there's also people that have had success doing a ton of exercises and you can come up with pros and cons to each so it really comes down to the you know the individual context i think yeah i think that was a great explanation and i guess two things that i'd add on to that even are just things that are maybe a little bit more difficult to to, to i guess measure uh, so some of the practical utility of doing that is I have any, at least noticed that when I've tried out some of these exercises and just sort of kind of played around with certain things, 
I've definitely noticed that I'm able to feel my muscles a little bit more. Like I can, it's almost like you can kind of feel the outline of your, of your lats or your back or your, whatever it is that you're training. You're kind of like, huh. And, and so it kind of presents a little bit more awareness around that. And I found that that'd be pretty helpful to one minimize ego lifting because it sort of reminds you like what the point of the, like what the objective is of the exercise. It's like, I'm not here to lift necessarily. I'm here to, to train my lats or train my, whatever it is that you're trying to do. So I think that it can be really good for that and just building awareness around like good movement quality. Um, and then secondarily, I also think that it could present a, maybe a benefit from an orthopedic standpoint because you're not necessarily, I mean, like I see a lot of powerlifters, especially who don't really take a lot of their accessory work seriously. They just kind of go in there and they're like, Whoa, you know, and they move the weight and, and that's, that's fine. But I also think that like bodybuilding is kind of underrepresented in powerlifting type training. Um, and if you were to take a lot of your accessories and treat them a little bit more like bodybuilding type movements, you can probably get a lot more out of them and probably stress your joints a lot less. So you're not just jacking up your shoulders when you're doing pull downs or rows or whatever, because you're also targeting a lot more where force is being like, how force is being directed and how the load's actually being applied to your tissues, whether it's passive or actively or whatever. Um, so those are two additional things that I've just, even my own personal experience have been hugely beneficial from trying some of these things and just sort of experimenting with it. Like, yeah, I, I think, I think like the foundational principles are really cool, but that's sort of what they are. It's like their principles. And then you can just kind of experiment and do whatever the hell you want with it, which is kind of interesting. I, I, I like that aspect of it anyways, but, um, yeah. yeah, people underestimate the practical utility of some of these exercises. For instance, the point that you're bringing up about, you know, possibly being able to feel or have a better connection with those muscles. Exercises that take you to either extreme range of motion, whether that be getting more of a stretch or getting the muscle more shortened, you have more sensory feedback in those positions. So they're great places to actually improve your ability to feel and then engage that muscle consciously, like to improve that. And the other thing is, is that when we look at exercises that are more biased to a tissue, that means that tissue is basically, it's, it's, it's driving the motion through as much of the range of motion as possible, you know, for, for that thing. Um, whereas exercises where there's kind of lots of handing off between like which muscles are doing the most work and how much work and stuff like that. Um, we'd call these more like integrated motions or omni based motions. Those motions don't, they don't really help you in terms of learning how to feel or engage a specific muscle because that movement is an orchestra of different muscles, right? So it would actually like focusing on one muscle in that motion actually might be like counterproductive. Um, and you'll see that a lot of time when people try and take like, they try and take a lift that isn't a biased exercise and then they try and overly focus on mind muscle connection and then they're using no load and they're shaking and they're having like a mental aneurysm because they're trying to like really focus on this one tissue um, and they're trying to drive the stimulus with intent rather than pick good exercise selection that would actually then make that muscle the best mechanical solution. Um, and that's, 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 I think a very important distinction is, is that like, if you really want to improve your ability to use tissue, right. Or, tar tar or target or, or grow specific things, the more specific those exercises, it's not just that they potentially could provide a better, you know, result in terms of strength or hypertrophy, but they also drastically decrease the learning curve and they set you up for success in terms of getting better at utilizing that tissue moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I guess you, you kind of alluded to it there as well, but 
if you could kind of expand on, <clears throat> I guess, the difference between, let's say, an exercise's range of motion versus the um, functional action of a particular muscle group that you might be doing. So, you know, again, going back to lat pull down, you're doing it, but then you kind of have this sort of passing off of what's actually controlling what at, at given ranges, uh, especially depending on like the angle and how you're setting up the exercise. So uh, if you can go into that, I think that would also provide a lot of context around some of these, because a lot of the times people will talk about range of motion. I actually just wrote an article on um, range of motion and how it's not quite so cut and dry. I know you've talked a lot about it before, but I think that would kind of help people understand the the shortened versus long range of motion and, and exercise range versus um, sort of functional ability of, of the muscle. Yeah. So when we're talking specifically about a muscle's range of motion, we're talking about literally like whether that, that muscle is contracted or stretched. And when we're thinking about, say, the principle of stretch made hypertrophy, it's really about how long you can get that muscle and also be be putting it under tension, um, which is different than an exercise because an exercise is going to have, you know, predetermined stopping points, right? So let's say that you were doing a barbell bench press, right? Well, the bar can't go any deeper than when it hits your chest. For some people, that may be like the end of, they, they can't lengthen their pecs in that plane anymore. Like that's, that's it. Um, and for other people, it might be like, well, if the bar wasn't in the way, they'd be able to shoulder extend to the point where the bar would actually be like pulling like two, three inches into their torso, right? So the range of motion of an exercise may not necessarily mean it's the full range of motion or the most extreme range of motion for a muscle. So when we look at things like seated versus the line leg curl, in both of those exercises, you're going to full knee extension, full knee flexion if you're, if you're performing them well. And... So the range of motion that you do at the knee is the same, but because the muscle is being stretched at the hips in a seated leg curl, the longer hamstrings are actually in a more lengthened position when you're near straight in the seated leg curl version than in the lying leg curl. So we're looking at range of motion for the muscle. We're actually talking about how much is that actual tissue, if you were to like pull it out of the body and pull it apart, how much is it stretched versus how much is it shortened versus when we're talking about an exercise, it's, you know, where within the range of motion that you can do this exercise are you? Now, I think, you know, when it comes to the mechanics of like when people are looking at things like moment arms or whatnot, they're trying to say like, well, okay, where is this hard? Or, you know, is this muscle actually doing the work there or is it just being stretched there? Um, there's, there's a ton of different examples of that where it could be, it's like, well, you have a muscle that's, it's in a position but it's not mechanically inclined to really do much there. Or you might have the opposite where it's like, it's mechanically inclined to do a lot there, but it's not necessarily um, in its position. So if I stay on the topic of lats and I'll just keep bouncing around with muscles. Um, if you take the top of a wide grip pull down, right? So you can do, you can go up to whatever is a full stretch. Like you can let your, you know, your scapulas elevate and just like you can get all the stretch out of that exercise as possible. And the lats will still be in a position to be able to pull the arm down and do a deduction, but they aren't actually at their full stretch because you're not taking advantage of several of the joints, which is going to be like the sternoclavicular joint being able to come around. So when you can bring the arm in front of the body, we last wrap around the rib cage, we can actually get more length out of them than we can just reaching up overhead in a, in a wide grip pull down. So, well, 
in that in a wide grip pull down, you could be like, well, the lats are still inclined to mechanically, you know, pull your arms down. They're not in a stretched position, right? So you wouldn't say that that exercise works the lats very well at their most lengthened position because it, the exercise simply doesn't get them to their most lengthened position, despite the fact that the lats may actually be doing mechanical work at the end or the lengthened range of the exercise. Am, am I answering the, the the question that you're asking there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, because <clears throat> um, that's one that I get pretty frequently. And I mean, it's understandable because unless you actually do kind of get into the nitty gritty it can be pretty tricky but especially the hamstring that's usually the the example that i give is that one paper on on uh hypertrophy of the hamstrings and like the seated versus the the prone position mm-hmm. um because it, it's, it's pretty straightforward but uh in terms of uh the barbell bench press i saw some like a couple people tagged me in a, in a post um about how the bench press needs to be retired as a as a chest building exercise and i don't know what your thoughts are but i just i <laughs> i can't imagine a good justification for that you know like i understand when you're talking about degrees of, of stimulus and altering you know exercises and stuff like that but you know this idea that like oh we found something slightly better therefore we should just sort of throw away all this other stuff um that's been attributed to you a lot which personally i've never seen you make any of those statements and i mean you kind of said it pretty clearly at the beginning so one i guess um kind of giving your thoughts about that and uh and and how that sort of um a lot of the stuff has kind of been taken out of context uh mm-hmm. of what you're saying but specifically regarding like the bench press versus maybe dumbbells or other variations that do allow for a little bit more range of motion and a little bit more of a, a natural i guess path yeah so this this is a good example um and this is what i'm trying to get people to 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 get or uh, this is the mindset i want people to have i should say there are plenty of exercises that we could put in a category of like these are good enough right like if you do these like and you apply consistency and effort then they're going to be productive all right. That doesn't mean that within that segment of exercises that are above the threshold of good enough, that there isn't a hierarchy that some will be better than others. And whether or not you're able to organize that hierarchy depends on how specific your goals are. Right. Because, for instance, if your goal is to, well, I want to build my chest, but I also want to have a big bench. Well, then guess what? Then all of a sudden that makes bench press much higher in the hierarchy than if your goal is I want to build my my chest, but I don't care at all how much I can bench press, right? That would drastically shift where bench press would sit in that hierarchy just based off of the goals that you're looking to accomplish. Um, So, I mean, to take my comments personally, you know, when people ask like, hey, you know, what do you think of bench, you know, whatever, you know, for, you know, chest hypertrophy? My answer is, is that, yes, you can grow your chest with bench press, but that's not the choice that I would choose if my goal wasn't also somewhat related to wanting to be able to barbell bench press a certain amount so like for me personally i i don't i don't press a a standard barbell because for me the orthopedic cost of forcing me into a certain degree of pronation and having a fixed grip width 
isn't worth it if I don't have any goals associated with being able to do the bar when I have machines and dumbbells and cables and all of these things that I can do that don't make my shoulders feel the same way. Now, somebody else that has a different body or different structure, they might bench press and like, they were like, dude, I bench press all the time and every my joints feel amazing. Like I have no issues. Me, if I bench a lot, you know, and I think part of it too has to, you know, has to do with strength, right? You know, I got up to the point, you know, where I was pressing almost 500 pounds and it's like, well, okay, the, the orthopedic cost of bench pressing 500 pounds is way different than benching 180 pounds, you know? So what may not have bothered you, you know, when you're pressing, you know, half the weight, it's like a thing. Yeah. So it, it really comes down to context and just, I think people, they just want there to be, a, they want there to be losers and winners in this exercise thing. And really what it is, is it's like, Hey, you have all these tools available to you and different people have different structures, which means that, you know, the opportunity cost and the orthopedic cost of doing one exercises over another is going to be different. You have people that are training at different frequencies, you know, all people that have different goals, et cetera, you know? And so, it's really about choosing the right tool for the job, but you should, under, but just because, you know, one tool has an, a, an advantage in a particular situation does not then therefore make that like, Oh, don't ever barbell bench press again, because dumbbell presses are unanimously better. Right. But well, to be honest, barbell presses are going to make you better at barbell pressing than dumbbell presses are. So if part of what makes you happy is you enjoy barbell pressing, or you're, one of the things that you want is you want to hit a certain barbell press, or you want to hit a certain total or whatnot, well, then that should be something that is is in your program. But if it's but if you're in my situation where it's like, look, you know, I've been through the days where I cared about how much I barbell press, those are far behind me. Like, I don't, I don't care. I, like, how much I barbell press will never be a thought in my mind for like, the rest there the rest of my life um and so for me it's like well if there's exercises that you know fit me better orthopedically better and i have easy access to them there's li literally no co no cost for me selecting these other exercises well then who knows maybe i'll never barbell press you know ever again but if i'm traveling and i go to and i got a hotel gym and there's nothing but a barbell press guess what i'm gonna do i'm gonna barbell press i'm not gonna be like well if i touch that my shoulders are gonna explode and i'm gonna die or you know my chest is gonna atrophy because the barbell press sucks so bad and she's like no i'm gonna use this because right now that's the best tool for the job yeah and i think one of the things that i've found pretty helpful as well and it's kind of a recurring thing i guess and in, in terms of what you're talking about is instead of being like you know this is the way to do things it's more about like i guess adopting a different perspective around how you're sort of looking at hypertrophy and how you're looking at training uh which is a little bit more i guess self-informed to, to some degree depending on like your context and your experience and stuff like that and i always like that because it allows quite like several degrees of freedom in terms of how you're going to experiment a lot of the stuff because like you said even just competing priorities in terms of what you enjoy doing and what's going to get you more engaged. And, and if you can maintain higher output in your training because you enjoy a particular exercise, then good enough actually becomes a little bit better than good enough because of, you know, I mean, the aforementioned reasons. And so um, regarding, uh, regarding kind of your recent conversation with, I, I don't remember the guy's name, sorry. Like I'm so, I don't really follow tons of people on Instagram, um, but uh, on on trap development, I kind of was following that, like, um, sort of. Uh, I think it was something to do with, like, fiber-type distribution, 
relative to the upper and lower traps or something like that. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this are probably a little bit more uh, aware of the, the discussion around this, but I'm not sure if you want to get into that and, and kind of uh, pick apart some of the details of that. Well, so does, I guess if, if we just go through the, the quick story of how this laid out and then roll into it is um, somebody asked me in one of my Q and A's like, you know, do shrugs work the upper traps? And I said, yes. And then this person, uh, you know, it's Paul Carter. Everybody's going to know that. Right. Um, sent me a DM is like, ah, oh, you know, shrugs don't, you know, elevate the scapular or whatever, or whatnot. And I was like, well, I disagree. And then the conversation kind of started uh, there and he mentioned some points and I meant, I mentioned some counterpoints on, you know, how it's not, you know, the upper traps, they don't attach to the scapula, but they still lift the scapula because they upwardly rotate the clavicle, which you can't, the scapula can't go up without you, you know, rotating your clavicle. That's literally the joint for the scapula to elevate is the, where your clavicle meets your sternum. That's, <laughs> that is a shrug is that, that, that motion is medial rotation of the clavicle. Um, but one of the points that Paul brought up was in the EMG testing that is in a lot of the research on the trapezius is that uh, they place the sensor for the upper traps pretty much right at the border of the what we call the middle and upper traps, right? Like it's like right on the border. Um, and so I said, hey, well, I have the ability to run my own experiment where I can place the sensors clearly on the upper and middle traps, and we, I can get I can get some data points that don't have that conflict. Um, and so we did that, um, and lo and behold, uh, we found that in more vertical shrugging variations versus like starting to do like a prone incline or a, a horizontal like retraction based shrug, the more vertical shrugs were more upper trap dominant and the more horizontal shrugs were lower trap or I'm sorry, middle trap dominant, um, which is, I, I would think that would be common sense. Um, basically, I mean, every, every person that I've uh, had a discussion on this topic kind of looks at me and like, how is this even, how is this even up for discussion uh, at this point that, I mean, that the upper traps don't work, like the sharks don't work the upper traps, like that, how is that not common sense at this point? Um, Anyway, so then the response to that um, was a video that referenced some studies, but basically all of the all of the comments in the video were not actually supported by the the reference studies. Um, and so you mentioned fiber size and fiber type. Like for one, if we're looking at principally, like people ask, like, hey, should you train for your fiber type? Fiber type doesn't change how muscles work in terms of the direction they pull. So like, regardless of what your fiber type is, your biceps are going to do elbow flexion. Like it doesn't matter like that, that, that they pull the elbow flex, right? And same thing. So the upper traps, whether they're, whether they were slow twitch or fast twitch, you know, whether they had big fascicles, small fascicles, big fibers, small fibers, none of that matters. The muscle's still going to pull in this, in the same direction, right? Now, maybe you might take into consideration, maybe the rep range or rest intervals and, and things like that. When you're like, oh, something's a little bit more fast twitch, then maybe I'm going to go like, you know, maybe I bias my rep range a little bit lower, or my rest period's a little bit longer, knowing, you know, how fatigue resistant and, and whatnot that particular tissue is. You could, you could intuitively make those things and theoretically potentially get better performance in your workout. Um, but in reality, 
the uh, the claims that were made in the video were actually the opposite. It was claimed that the upper traps like are slow twitch dominant, and that wasn't even investigated in the reference study, but in a different study, the one that we do have on trap fiber type, shows that the upper traps are actually the most fast twitch of all of the traps. They're actually fairly fast twitch. They're only 44% slow twitch, which, you know, we don't have a lot of muscles that are like super, super fast twitch. So, you know, at being only 44% slow twitch and, you know, 50%, 56% fast twitch, that's, in terms, that's on the, the side of being some of the more fast twitch, you know, muscles in the body, right? You look at things like even like, you know, you look at the glute max, which is considered like a huge power-based muscle, right? It's slightly type one dominant. It's slightly slow twitch dominant on average, right? Um, and that's just because functionally it needs to be somewhat, you know, fatigue resistant, right? Because if your glutes, if your glutes fatigue really fast, well, then your posture and your ability to maintain load and stabilize your trunk is going to go pretty fast. Um, so the body's pretty intuitively designed in terms of like we have muscles that instead of having, you know, a smaller size total size, but having more fast switch fibers to produce their power, they have a higher amount of type one fiber so that they can still produce like the same amount of torque, right? Or the, the same amount of tension, but they're more fatigue resistant if they do it. The, co the, the, the cost to us then is that we have to carry around a little bit more weight, right? So our body is all about finding the most efficient way to do things. And sometimes that's putting a little bit more fast switch fibers in something. Sometimes it's having a higher amount of type one fibers in something, but none of that changes how the muscle would function. And the actual quotes about the study were just just false i guess is, is the way to put it and that's that's really what started the the whole discussion it wasn't that there was a disagreement on you know how a muscle functions like there's lots of there's lots of room for conversation on different opinions and on how to train things because we just don't have we don't have perfect or conclusive evidence on every single thing so a lot of us are giving our best opinion on the available evidence so there's room for debate there uh, but what i don't think there's room for debate is is that you know making claims that say hey this study shows this when it doesn't even measure those things like the words literally aren't even me mentioned in the study um to me that's very disingenuous is to I, I, it's hard for me to it's hard for me to figure out or like what is it was it was it intentionally malicious right like was it intentionally like hey i know these things aren't true but i'm going to put a citation after them or was it a genuine mistake? Um, neither of those in this context, like for that level of a mistake or misunderstanding, neither of those are good uh, in my opinion. And the fact that it was used as, we'll say somewhat of a, I don't wanna say attack, that's a little dramatic, but it was used, it was directed at me of like, hey, he's wrong based off of this, this, and this, right? And they weren't like opinions or different interpretations. They were literally obviously false statements. So that's that i mean i don't know how much how deep you want to get into it or you know do you want do you want to know do you want to get into how we should train traps because it, it's what everybody's already going to think like you shrug your shoulders up and down um that's spoiler alert yeah um no no that that totally makes sense and so there's a couple things in there i guess that i wanted to, to touch on the first i think is just <clears throat> there seems to be like a big issue and and the thing is like i can't necessarily hate on people for doing that because when i first got involved in reading research i fucking know i did the exact same thing where i just threw common sense out the window and i was like oh well this study says this and therefore blah mm -hmm. blah blah when now 
you know, when you kind of get more like actual real world experience, you start to be a lot more hesitant about accepting stuff. And you're pretty critical when you're evaluating new information, even, even existing information, because it's like, does anyone really need to look at a study to know that shrugging is going to make your traps jacked? Like, can you point out one Olympic weightlifter who's not, who doesn't have massive traps? Like they all have huge traps and it's like, what are they doing? Oh, everything is a shrug. Everything is their triple extension, you know? So like, just like you said, common sense, it shouldn't really be that hard to, to kind of look at that. Whereas I think sometimes it's really easy to get caught up in the minutia, especially when people start talking about mechanisms. And, you know, when people talk about, let's say like carbs and insulin and stuff like that and, and different biomarkers like that's where it can get kind of tricky because you're like oh man this is really advanced like yeah he's bringing up a good point but then it's like if you just kind of zoom out there's a big difference between mechanisms and what you actually see play out in the real world sometimes Mm -hmm. and so i think you know going into something and kind of always sort of superimposing like hey you know your own i don't want to necessarily say your own experience but what you are reasonably confident in being you know, and approximating the truth because of your years of experience and, and whatever, right? Like if you go in there with that and someone starts saying a bunch of crazy shit, you're probably more likely to be able to flag that earlier on as opposed to being like buying in and drinking the Kool-Aid and then being like, oh shit, now I feel like an idiot because I said the traps didn't, or sorry, shrugs didn't train your traps or, you know, and that's not, I'm not calling anyone. I actually don't really know who Paul Carter is. I've heard the name a bunch, but um Actually, one thing as well that I was going to mention was uh, I ran like a little social experiment, still not quite done yet, on my story where I was talking about, um, made a series of posts essentially getting people to engage with, uh, asking about um, how, what makes you trust a paper? And I had a bunch of people answering all these questions. So it was like, what makes you trust a a research study? Um, and then it was like, uh, are you good at critically evaluating research? And then the third was like, do you have a strong background in statistics? Uh, do you have, you know, this education? Do you have this, 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 and this? And, and then like, how confident are you in this? And, blah, blah. and so there's a bunch of other things. And like, it was so funny because only one person actually wrote, like, I don't just trust research. They're like, I, I have to read it and review it and determine whether or not, you know, what they're doing is actually like legitimate. Everyone else, when they were talking about um, whether research was like valid or not, they were like, oh, well, transparency and funding. It's like transparency and funding is pretty much all, we're already kind of there, you know? Um, and then the other one was like peer review. It's like, okay, well, there's a lot of peer review stuff that's also not very good quality. So that's not really a good indicator like in isolation, then there was just all these different things. And then the number of people, like 98% of the people who responded said they were good at critically evaluating research. But then on the following page, most of them admitted that they didn't have a statistics background. They didn't, uh, they didn't have like a specialized knowledge in whatever field we were talking about. And like, they were missing literally everything. And and I was just like, man. And and then even after that, their level of confidence in uh, their assertions and their ability to. I also asked about uh, when the last time you changed your mind was, and you know, think about something really, really like uh, polarizing for you. What would you? What evidence would you need to see to to change your perspective on this or something like that? And like, 
and it's like nothing would change my mind i'm not sure what i'd need to see or um yes here's exactly what it is and almost everyone wrote i'm not sure what i need to see and so it's like if you're not sure what you need to see then obviously you don't even understand the situation well enough to really be make you know what i mean so it's just it's really interesting anyways how certain some people are and again like i'm not above this either but i think the more you do research the more you write the more you teach you're a little bit more hesitant about like being super super confident about i don't want to say confident but you kind of get what i'm saying but it was a really interesting experiment i'm actually i might write an article on it. i'm definitely going to make a post on it but uh kind of brings a lot of people's ability to think critically in a question you know yeah I think people forget that the the whole point of like if you're going to dig into the research is not to seek validation for your point it's actually to try and find evidence that you're you know possibly wrong that because that's yeah. essentially you um because if you just search for like you know is this thing i believe true you're only going to come up with the shit that says it's it's true <laughs> right. um yeah but uh, but if but if you're if you're looking at you know if you're looking deep at things i think in a way reading research like the dosage can be the cure in terms of this mindset because what you're going to find is you're going to find studies that conflict each other and then you're stuck in that situation of like well which one do i believe and then you have to actually you know pay more attention and you have to disseminate the information further and and whatnot and i think that that's an experience if you know if if people can see some of those examples where it's like oh this isn't clear cut and dry. Like I have two, maybe like equally, you know, good studies, right? Or maybe they were done slightly differently, but they had different outcomes. Like how do I choose which one of those, you know, I, I favor more, or do I take the stance that, you know, it's just undecided, you know, or whatnot. Um, and, you know, having like having been in the trenches gives you a good bullshit meter, like on, on, on both sides, like in like, you sh that that should play both ways, right? You should use you should use research as a way of questioning your own anecdotes, right? But you should also use your own observational experience as reason to be you know critical of things that you might hear in in the published research, and that that doesn't mean that those things always have to conflict. But sometimes it's like, hey, the data that's coming from the study is true but it's not the context that i'm looking at in or that i'm observing this thing in that's contrary to that and so simultaneously there can be two different like these things can be viewed two different ways because the way i like to describe research is research is built to have a high confidence in cause and effect right like it, it's meant to say hey if you do this then this happens like this intervention has this specific effect and so it's all about controlling as many variables as possible so that we really know that what they're what they're testing actually is having this effect what that does is it strips away most of the context in terms of real world right like for instance you take people and you do a nutrition study where they're in a metabolic world ward um where they have like they have no choice but to follow the diet like you get what you are served right that's not how it happens in the real world right you know people 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 are on the seafood diet they see food and they eat it right like <laughs> whether it's on their diet or not um so there's 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 a huge difference between the context of some of these research studies and then in the real world what we have is we have like 
our anecdotes, our observations are the most contextual, meaning that what you find working for you is working for you in spite of all of the variables in your life, right? Everything that is your life, the, the billions of variables that are going on from your genetics to your home environment, to the training, to, you know, the music that you live, to the breakfast that you had, to the how stressful your drive is to work, all of those things combined. What you're observing is, well, how am I managing to either have success or for failures in this complete context? Right. And so you should look at, you know, well, the anecdotes and the observations that I have are giving me the information that is the most specific to me. But the consequence of that is, is like, well, I don't know for sure what is causing me to either be successful or not successful at this point in time, because there's too many things going on. It's very hard for me to say, oh, it's this one exercise I did, or it's this one change that I made to my diet that had this change, because there's so many things that are constantly changing. So you need to take the published research is like, hey, this kind of gives us an idea of like, there's a cause and effect here, right? But I also have to know that in my life, you know, as a human being, there's so many compounding variables that that cause and effect may not even move the threshold because I have all these other things that are also having a cause and effect that maybe I do or don't know about. Um, and so I may not see, I may not always observe the outcome that's in the research because that just because that is a factor, it may not be a big enough factor or it may not be a relevant factor in the context of you as an individual, right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess to give an example of, of what you're saying, uh, I'm just finishing up writing a paper on like men's mental health. And part of that talk goes into social media uh, and the impact of impact of, of social media on um, mental health, particularly in adolescence. And there's like, I think it's really popular for people to be like, oh, social media is just garbage for you. And like it rots your brain and it's so bad. It makes people depressed, this, that, and the other. And there's a decent amount of research showing that that's true. And then there's also a decent amount of research like showing that that's actually not true and it's really unreliable. Um, and then people kind of get confused and I always hear them say, oh, well, you can find a study to prove anything. But it's like, well, no, that's not really true. Like you can't find a study to prove anything. It's just that you're not understanding the broader context that that particular finding exists, exactly like what you're saying, right? And um, in fact, there's almost no studies that prove anything. Everything just gives us maybe a probability. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And it, that, that kind of goes to the broader misunderstanding about like what research is even kind of actually doing. But, uh, but yeah, and so like kind of at, at the end of that little like portion, I even just wrote like, look, you know, to kind of clarify some of the conflicting information here, like it's very likely that, you know, it's, it, it doesn't necessarily have an inherent uh, negative outcome for most people. You know, it's, it's more likely that it's kind of mediated by various effects that would potentially lead to an increase in risk in some individuals, just in the same way that tracking calories isn't inherently bad, but for people who are predisposed to ED, it might increase their risk of, of you know, either subclinical or fully clinical disorder type eating behavior. You know, and that's not something that you're really going to always see when you read a study. Like, that's something that takes experience to just sort of know. And I always kind of warn people, like, when, whenever someone's like, hey, how do you get good at reading research? I'm like, just read everything. Like, read everything. You know, don't don't just read, like, this one book and or that book. It's like, 
I honestly found that in order to actually be decent at anything, I had to read like a million books on statistics. I had to read a million journals. I had to read a million of those NSCA books. And like, it took so long because you just, I mean, I, like it's your, it's your profession, right? So like, <laughs> that's what you have to do. You, you have to dedicate so much time to doing it that I, I tend to think that like dabbling in reading research, if you don't actually have a lot of time to get into it, probably is honestly like a waste of time. Dude, I, I still know, find... I don't know if you can even evaluate it on your own. Because like, yeah, sorry, anyone's going. I still find papers where I'm reading it and I'm like, I have no idea what these guys are saying, right? On, on a particular yeah. thing or whatnot. The, the, you know, especially like when, when you're... The more nuanced the field that you're getting in or the more technical, the more it's like, look, if you are not like very specialized in this right so i mean there's some biomech biomechanist papers that i'll read and they're going through the math and whatnot and i'm just like okay that uh, uh, you guys good job like lots of lots of numbers and letters and greek stuff on here like okay you know um when they're working on building these you know computer computational models and stuff like that and it's like okay i'm 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 at the point where it's just like okay do I want to continue to invest into learning enough to understand what they're saying? Or do I reach a certain point where I'm have to be like, look, you know, I know quite a bit about this stuff, especially from a practical aspect, right? But it, is it going to serve me any benefit to be able to sit and decipher how they did this mathematical model to support this computer thing or, or whatnot? And I'm like, all right, well, that's basically me, you know, having to take on pursuing another career just to be able to know whether or not I should be able to trust this paper or not. So you do get to a certain point where you kind of have to be like, all right, I'm going to take on good faith that their conclusions or whatever might be good because clearly they sound smarter than, than I do here. And it doesn't, it doesn't violently, you know, set off the bullshit alarm. Right. So it's like, okay, it's probably, it's probably safe, safe to say. Um, but yeah, I don't think, you know, unless you have the capacity to be all knowing and a specialty at, you know, at everything, if you dig deep enough at this stuff, you're going to have people that are the niche is getting they're in a niche of a niche of a niche. You're going to get to people that understand that part of it at a level that you don't. And then sometimes, you know, I don't think, you know, research isn't meant necessarily to be educational, um, like the or at least papers aren't written that way. Um, and I think a lot of people are approaching it like, hey, I'm going to read research to learn. And it's like, I don't, I think if you're, if your goal is to learn, you should actually, you should, you should participate in, in courses and classes and books that are meant to teach you the foundations of that information. Because the people that are writing the research papers are writing those papers for their colleagues that they think already have all of those things or whatnot. They're like, like research isn't written for social media, like, or for just Joe fitness to be able to read and, and disseminate, like, Hey, here's what's going on. Um, and that's where I think, you know, like things like, you know, like mass, you know, like the resistance or I'm sorry, the, the research reviews or whatever, like with, you know, Eric Helms, Trexler, Greg Knuckles and whatnot, like that, that's such a valuable resource, right? Like James Krieger does one, you know, there's, which I think it's like weightology or whatever. Like, so there's uh mental Henselman, you know, another, another person where it's like, these guys specialize in basically looking at this complicated stuff and then being able to communicate that to the people that aren't 
you know, aren't going to take it upon themselves to be specialists there. So I think those are, those are, those are also really good tools. I think before you try and read a bunch of research yourself, you should learn the foundation stuff and maybe listen to some research reviews. Cause it'll also humble you a bit, you know, to hear like, you know, somebody like, you know, Greg Knuckles that like, he is the guy that reads, like he just reads tons and tons and tons and tons of research. Right. Um, and so like when you're like, Oh man, I read like, you know, five papers on this or whatever. And somebody else is like, yeah, five papers. I read that like, you know, on the toilet yesterday. Um, it's like, okay, that puts things in perspective too. Like if you really, if you really want to be good at this or you really want to, you know, do that, then it's a huge, it's a huge investment. And for a lot of people, it's, it's not worth, it's not worth the cost, which is why it's so nice in the fitness industry to be able to like, look, there's a lot of things that work and you don't have to be a perfectionist, right? Maybe you're doing something and it's only 80% as good. But guess what? If you just do it a little bit longer than the person that's doing it 100%, you might still just get there, right? And if you take into account all of your observations and anecdotes along the way, you're likely going to individualize your approach better than what you could do than if you just made a plan off the research anyway, because the research doesn't have the context of, of your life, right? So understand it to the point where it's benefiting you, but there's a point of diminishing returns where trying to be able to, you know, absorb more research isn't necessarily going to net you any changes or benefits to what you were doing. Cause likely what you're going to find out is, is that the more you deep you get into it, the more you realize that like, man, there's so many variables that either I can't measure or don't control that. Like now I'm at the point where does this matter? So if it's like, Hey, if I do the pull down this way, it doesn't feel good. Kind of ouchy. I do it this way. Ah, I like that. Feels good. I seem to progress my weights, you know, be able to progressively overload it. Cool. Like if you apply that methodology to things, like odds are you're not going to make a ton of bad decisions. Yeah, I I think that's a that's a good place to end off here. Um, where can people find you, Kasim? Um, so they can find our courses at m1.education, um, and our member site is n1.training, and then we are on Instagram at those two things respectively um you know our education platform is literally that it's, it's where we offer you know courses on program design biomechanics stuff like that um and then i'm on the socials you know you can find us on youtube and one education you can find me personally on instagram uh at coach underscore casm um that's where all the drama seems to get done is on my my, my personal page as much as as much as I don't enjoy the drama, I do enjoy debate. And uh, yeah, so that's where it happens. Awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely make sure you go and check them out. Give them a follow. Follow N1. They put up lots of great content on a regular basis across a lot of different platforms. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and like it and share it and do all that fun stuff so I can stop being homeless. All right. Thanks so much for joining, man. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you later. I mean, take it easy.